0: It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at the Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter.
1: Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropical climbs. True currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing, through breathing trees. Strong goes on and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find.
0: Good planets are in the man. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree, Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. streams, air. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. Good planets
2: are in the main
3: That's the one. That the we, That's the one that we want up there. I wanted that screen, not the not the ah. other screen. And here we are. That's why I was sort of I, I just typed uh, good morning folks into the uh the, Restream the...
4: is not working.
3: <laughs> what? The chat I or... can't get mm-hmm. Are are we on uh, Restream at all this morning? I mean, it is being. it is is it going out We're, to
4: I see us on Facebook. Oh, okay. there's ten people watching so far. Good morning, everybody.
3: Uh, but you're saying the chat function is not working on Restream.
4: I have reloaded Restream twice, and thank you. So I will be monitoring Facebook. Ah, thank you,
3: Restream. <laughs> oh boy, there and and we'll have to monitor Twitter as well. But I but I know yeah, I can't one, get into Periscope. One of our. Uh, what do you mean you can't get into Periscope? You don't we'll know do how. We'll talk
4: about that detail later. What?
3: You <laughs> wait. You can't get into restream. You I can't, can't into...
4: monitor restream. I can't monitor Periscope huh. during the show. Well, but we... anyways, we're getting high from Facebook from a few people, so I'm just All monitoring right. Facebook.
3: All right, and uh, we can have one of our guests monitor uh, Twitter for us because she's a, a Twitter pro um and uh she's going to be uh with us in, in just a second as soon as they say hi to everybody and well
4: we we have to do the hippie astro. Up- oh right right the right week. the
3: hippie astrum uh report uh you okay show us yours which is uh, out of frame because it's so tall that's the problem i had with the one i had for a couple of weeks there we back there yeah look at that
4: it's kind of lily like
3: uh it is it does look like a lily, and those of you watching who are saying that's an amaryllis, uh, no, you're wrong. It's not, um, but it's called an amaryllis And we got
4: yours behind you.
3: Well, wait, let's let's bring that here. I'll bring mine in. It's uh, some nice. There we go. Isn't that sweet? Pretty. Yeah. Um, and I and I got a pot of them in the living room that aren't going to bloom at all apparently. I have several
4: pots full of leaves.
3: (laughs) Yep. Just the leaves. And the one that I had here is now out on the back porch. I actually started taking some of my plants out back. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Now, now I'm going to keep an eye on the temperatures uh, to make sure that they don't get below. I, I, you know, the whole, I'm not sending out the whole group, but I did take out my, uh, maybe it was a mistake. uh, My, uh, my huge, I don't know how much it weighs. It's got to weigh 80 pounds, maybe, maybe more. Um, uh, my lura, which is eight ah, feet, eight your feet holiday tall. tree. My holiday, yes. I put my uh, my Xmas lights on, so uh, that's out back. Some of the other plants are out back uh, because it was too warm this week. That was a, a little scary to have mm-hmm. uh, 80s, I, you know. And and it's amazing. You and we should ask Rick DeMaio about this when we talk to him later in the show. What is it about weathercasters? and it and this is you know this is my pet peeve here one of my pet peeves and there's a lot when oh. it comes to the weather folks yeah 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 uh there are We two have things. a weather
4: weather rant warning
3: yeah right and um it is uh why is it that uh all rain is bad no matter what it's like oh it's going to rain oh that's just so terrible <laughs> and i'm like what what are you guys talking about we're, we're we're you know we're too dry here kind of in in a semi drought And you're going, rain is bad. And the other is, warm weather is always good. doesn't matter if it's 80 degrees in December, um, you know, for a week. Nobody says, wow, that's really weird. It's like, oh, it's 80 degrees. Let's go out with our (laughs) short sleeve shirts. It's like, no. Get off my lawn. No context at all. You know, no context about the climate change or anything. And it makes me want to. Shut up, Wesley. All right, there we go. Uh, but, uh, if, if the, Where'd the if, end
4: of that go, what
3: do you mean the end of it? <laughs> there was only one. Th- oh yeah. No, no, no. For, there's no point having three punches because, uh, I, it, you don't even get to see him throwing a punch. Shut up,
4: Wesley. All
3: right. So there you okay. go. <laughs> <Alrighty>. <laughs> All right. So that's, uh, that's my rant, um, uh, about the weather rant, folks. Rant, 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 so rant, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but now we get back to normal weather and, and, of course, the 80 degrees took out most of my daffodils. They just uh, are all blasted now and sort of – uh, but that's okay because I'm sure uh, one of our guests here will say, well, why don't you have native plants? Well, I do actually have uh, lots of natives. Um, they're just not quite as spectacular are... in the spring. What?
4: Well, the blood – my blood root have been blooming this past week. My oh, trilliums good. are all getting oh, buds. Right. Bluebells yeah. are starting.
3: Yeah, my bluebells are spreading. My my Mayapple um, uh, is being its thuggish self and mm-hmm. taking over a whole swath. Well, of
4: that's land. what they do. Uh,
3: yeah, I know. They just and then I I'll, I'll rip out a bunch of them and transplant them someplace else, and they'll do that someplace else. So there you go. Uh, it's called
4: naturalizing. Uh,
3: so where native plants is partly on the schedule today. Um, monarch butterflies are on the schedule today. Uh, piping plover plovers or plovers, however you want to pronounce that are on the schedule today. we got some great guests here let 's let 's just get uh wait a second before we do that let 's make sure that i 've got my uh, my cheat sheet otherwise I will not do this right okay there 's the cheat sheet hello all right. Now, I feel comfortable in bringing in... And now. And now, there's uh, Erica. And and Erica, you know, I didn't ask you the other day, do you pronounce your last name Hassel? Is that how you pronounce it?
5: I do. It's like it has two S's, but it doesn't.
3: (laughs) Okay. Erica Hassel, who's a uh, uh, conservation ecologist at the Field Museum, and her partner in crime, Isabella Redlinski, also a conservation ecologist from the Field Museum, and... Um, they contacted us a, a, a couple of months ago and said, you know, we, we are working on a project at the Field Museum about monarchs, monarch community science, and we'd love to talk about that on your show. And we said, are you kidding? Let's do it um, because, as you know, and I, maybe you don't know because it, we're only into April here, the numbers coming out of Mexico with the overwintering monarchs were down again um and uh that is something that erica you're you're trying to address here if you if you charted if you look at the numbers in the last decade it's not good if you look at the numbers over the last 20 years it's it's a like that even even averaging out some of the um the better years um and that's a that's a disturbing trend isn't it erica
5: yeah, there have been some good years in there, but it's been a long time since we've had a good year. Um, and the, the general decl- trend is toward serious decline. For And we're, there are two populations. So we're the eastern population east of the Rockies. Uh-huh. There's the western population, which some folks may have heard, they count those in, around Thanksgiving. And that was less than 2,000 individuals. Um, wow. The western population is bigger, or the eastern population is bigger, so there are more monarchs. <laughs> But you know mm-hmm. our number, the the population that they counted this winter was was quite low. I think it's one of the six lowest that's been recorded. Um, so that that's not good, as they say.
3: Well, no, it's not, and and people do confuse the two populations and conflate them. They are separate and distinct populations because the western monarchs, which are west of the Rockies, basically. Uh, overwinter in california mainly right um and the east yeah and the eastern population overwinters in mexico and traditionally the eastern population has been much larger than the western but the western population is i don't know it's a goner if you ask me it's it's you know it's it's hard to imagine it it was at a million a few years ago and now it's down to two thousand, as less fewer than two thousand and uh, how does how does the species bounce back from that i mean
5: uh, you're in the territory where you have to wonder if there's going to be a captive breeding program but but part of the the western population is um more complicated in a lot of ways uh you know we're fortunate and that our milkweed here in the midwest certain species really conform to that weed part of the name i mean I've seen common milkweed growing in my alley in the cracks in the sidewalk. It's a lot harder to grow milkweed in the West. It's obviously drier in the West. Um, I think some of the challenge there is, is, you know, loss of that overwintering habitat, Uh, some of them were actually lost in the California fires. Um, So it's it's there are many things decline causing the decline of both populations. The West is less well understood.
0: but and, folks are working on it. Yeah, yeah. And then there's, and then there's climate change. So that just oh yeah, you know, well yeah and, adds insult to all the injury.
3: And welcome into the conversation, Isabella. Thank you for, right. for being here with us this morning. Yeah, you're right. But climate change leads to things like uh, the forest fires, the wildfires in, in the West. You can say that there. You can draw a line there, and um, and if that results in habitat loss, then you have the, uh, the loss of the, uh, the species as well. So, uh, but you guys are mainly focused on the Eastern monarch, right? Yes. Yes. So, um isabella since uh, you you came uh, into the conversation now why don't you explain uh, what you guys are doing and by the way you both work for the keller science action center you guys need um, superhero costumes for the action center the cape, the cape there's right. a cape right there and uh, I, I
5: like to call us k-sack like k-pop
0: um for all your fans <laughs> who also are fans of k-pop all right <laughs> you got the first bell erica should go on your resume
4: there we go i'll keep i'll keep uh, calm erica isabella how many bells each
3: all right um uh isa why don't you uh explain what you're doing uh with the monarch community science project
0: sure um so pretty much what we're trying to do is think of what makes a successful urban patch for the monarch butterfly right we know some people planned um, one milkweed, and they find four caterpillars just munching it down. And it's okay if, if the caterpillars are eating down your milkweed. That's great because that's why you planted it. Yep. Uh, so don't don't be scared of that. <laughs> well, um, you're not
3: going to eat it yourself because uh, you'd uh, you'd probably throw up
4: true uh
0: but we you know we want to know what is it about it is it the placement of where the milkweed is is it the species is it the number of species is it the number of species combined with other plants that are growing there so there's a lot of unknown and uh science is taking tiny little bits off of every one of those questions and uh we know that urban areas really matter so uh back in the day like five, six years ago, Erica jump in to correct me there. Um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service determined that, you know, the monarch is in trouble and we need all hands on deck to help it. So that means every type of um, land use type needs to be involved. Your national parks, sides of highways, agriculture, state parks, um, everyone needs to do their part. And then they looked at urban areas and went, eh, not so much, no milkweed there. And uh, Erica and some other colleagues, before I came into Field Museum, looked around and sort of also went, eh, now there is uh, a lot of milkweed in the uh, urban areas. We see it where we live, where we work, where we play, where we worship, and there's a potential to have more. So uh, people got involved in this really uh, interesting research, seeing how much milkweed there is, and then based on um, these sort of exemplary sites where uh, there's landscaping done with native plants, seeing how much milkweed there uh, can be, and uh, sort of projecting that to urban areas around uh, mm-hmm. the east, where the eastern population of the monarch is. And we found out that almost a third of the 1.8 billion stems of milkweed could be provided by urban areas if we do our part. And that is converting less than you know half of your lawn to Uh, native plants, like Doug Ptolemy asked us to convert half of our land into uh, the homegrown national park, which is a fabulous idea. Uh, It even accounts for less than that. Uh, So, yay, urban areas are important, but we want to know how do you structure that urban habitat in a way that would be most optimal for the monarch Mm -hmm. habitat. So we ask people to uh, monitor their lawns. Uh, I mean, there are native patches uh, for milkweed and check them for eggs. And Erica can tell you more about it because that is her baby. She runs that project. um, We're in the third year. And um, I don't know if I can even call myself her co-pilot, but she's she's definitely (laughs) heading us forward on that.
3: Uh, well, one one of the things, Erica, I'd like you to explain is the monarch's unique relationship with milkweed, because we, we talk about milkweed. Um, talk about that relationship um, and what else the monarch needs to thrive.
5: For sure. And Iza is definitely, uh, this is a team effort. Um, every, everything we do at the museum is, is very collaborative. Uh, so monarchs and milkweed... Scientifically, you call it a host plant relationship. Uh, but adult monarchs will only lay eggs on milkweed. They can actually taste the milkweed with their feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's some really? evidence that they have a preference for the more toxic. So while uh, some people will know and think of milkweed as toxic, um, it's, you know, yeah, you probably wouldn't want to eat it. Uh, although I'm told that people do eat the seed pods. Uh, I've not tried that. I should. Mm. <laughs> so they so um they the adults will only lay eggs on there and then the caterpillars will only eat milkweed. Uh and they will definitely like move between plants in a patch. That's that's really um been documented. But they will consume milkweed, they go through uh five insect life stages, which are called instars. So you can kind of watch them get successively bigger. And then they will leave the milkweed pen, uh and go somewhere and form a chrysalis and then turn into a beautiful butterfly, as we all learned in The Hungry, Hungry Caterpillar,
3: as children. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh,
5: well, so the one thing I always say is in the two different significant parts of their lives, the adults drink milk, drink milk, no, drink nectar from flowers. If they drink milk from flowers, that would be impressive. So (laughs) they need flowers. They need all of the different flowers that that people can have. They need plants blooming throughout the year. They're not here yet. They are in southern parts of the U.S. now. They're like in Oklahoma, Missouri. I think someone has been seen in uh, St. Louis already. Uh But so they need all the different flowers that you can plant. They can't subsist on just a field of milkweed. But the caterpillars need the milkweed.
3: Okay. And, and, and uh, which brings us to specifics. Every yard is different. Every patch is different. I can, I know Peggy and I talk about this and uh, you see uh, monarch caterpillars in your yard, right, Peggy? Mm
4: -hmm. I do not. Yes.
3: I see monarchs. In fact, last year I saw a monarch uh, pretty much every day. I would walk, I could walk out into my yard and it would come over and, uh, to the, uh, the milkweed or the Joe pie weed or the coneflower. They love the coneflower. That's where I, yeah. I see a lot of, uh, yeah. uh the my, purple
0: or the yellow coneflower
3: purple. Um, sorry. Thank you for asking, uh, <laughs> purpurea. Right. Um, and, um, uh, but I, I have yet in several years to see a caterpillar. Why is that? And are there, are there explanations for that?
5: Well, Mike, we well, need I, you to I,
0: participate in the Monarch Community Science Project. That's what it oh, is. Oh, oh so uh,
3: if I participate, the the, yes. the caterpillars will show up. Yes.
0: No, but maybe we can uh, help you answer some of the questions. So you uh, would we would ask you to look at your milkweed plant once a week uh, and see if there's eggs. Perhaps uh, there are no eggs in your uh, patch, or perhaps something is eating your eggs, which is okay. Because it's part of the life cycle, right? The eggs are a nutritious, Mm -hmm. delicious treat for many other insects. (laughs) The the ants Uh, love them. uh, Ants,
3: Wait, 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 stop, stop. Ants go after uh, milkweed, or rather uh, monarch eggs? Yeah.
5: So um, some poor grad student put a camera on eggs and watched all the film, not our grad student, uh, of what happened. And so interestingly a lot of the predation happened at night um so i should say like we're asking everyone to do this project one of the hardest things i think for people we thought the hardest thing would be asking people to look every week most people are Mm -hmm. happy to do that it's that you're gonna you're gonna see eggs that don't turn into caterpillars you're gonna see caterpillars that don't Mm -hmm. make it through all of their life stages because they do get eaten even though the caterpillars are like toxic and i mean not like it will kill a bird but not tasty to birds they do disappear. Um one of especially the big predators for eggs is ants. Um and spiders also spiders probably. Another.
4: Spiders. Yeah. And I've watched on caterpillars I've watched wasps just pull them right off the plant.
3: Yeah. It, it, it's tough being a, a monarch uh or trying yeah. <laughs> to, to trying to become a monarch butterfly.
5: Yeah. But it, it's so it's saying. There. Yeah. You're <laughs> Getting the, the zeros from people who, uh, you know, feel like they have planted a garden, but they're not seeing stuff. Those are really helpful to us. Really? Because <laughs> we, we are, well, we're trying to understand, like, what are the components? Because we hear this from people. I planted milkweed. I didn't see anything. I planted milkweed and I saw caterpillars, but they never made it very far. And so we need kind of the data from those along with the data from the gardens where people are like, uh, you know, I have five monarch chrysalises under my patio table. Uh, My monarchs are doing great. So, Mm -hmm. because we don't know, everyone asks us, how can I plant a good garden for milkweed? And we have some ideas, we have some suggestions, but we don't have science that says this are some of the components of a really successful garden. These are Mm -hmm. some of the components of a garden that's, you know, not as successful for monarchs
4: so erica do you have any information or any any data on soil if soil affects some some <laughs> so, soil properties affecting the way perhaps that the plant is tasting to the caterpillars we don't i want value. everyone
5: I, I i want all the soil scientists to please look into this <laughs> i feel like we don't know enough about urban soil particularly urban soil i mean so we're we're not just talking about how to plant habitat for gardens. We're talking about, or for monarchs, we're talking about in urban places. And ecology mm-hmm. in urban places is not as well studied as it is elsewhere. Uh, things that we looked at initially in the project that we thought might be important, because they're important in um, in like a, you know, a Medewin, so far have not shown to be particularly significant for urban places. Such um, so as? I think we don't, well... So there's some evidence that the density, so how close the plants are to each other in a big place like a forest preserve or a meadowland um is possibly important. But I think it has not tracked with the success of gardens and urban places, probably because they're substantially smaller. Uh mm-hmm. so you're not like a monarch uh you know trying to find more milkweed in a 5000 acre prairie. Uh you're in a, you know, 20 square foot yard
3: and that's what i have i mean i don't have a 20 mm-hmm. square foot yard i have more like a 500 square foot yard but that's kind of tiny um yeah. and uh and you're right i i have seen eggs on uh the leaves but i've never seen a, a caterpillar uh i i don't have a camera there so i don't know what is <laughs> getting the uh <laughs>
4: what's what's munching what's munching on that's the an eggs.
5: intense project
3: yeah but you know it's not a bad idea it might might be kind of interesting uh, especially if i i spot one and then and monitor it just to, to to see what's going on but that's that's part of what the whole project is and and you bring up a really interesting point and and isa you alluded to this earlier that um it, there have been studies now that show the urban areas might be a key to preserving um monarchs simply because more people are planting milkweed and uh, milkweed is is uh, being destroyed in agricultural areas uh, by products like uh, glyphosate um, and uh, otherwise known as roundup uh, and which uh, farmers can apply to their fields and 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 Erica you and I talked about this the other day you can see um, uh, nowadays a stray uh, roundup ready cornstalk in a field of soybean patch but you won't see milkweed um and yeah. that in the old days that's what would pop up in those uh those fields yeah uh, um so that so-
0: urban piece is super important and it's a part of the piece it's a piece of the puzzle so yes we have to plant in our urban areas and everyone should have a milkweed plant or five and that'd be really wonderful uh, but then Um, This is a little bit out of my wheelhouse, but as um, everyday citizens, we should also urge that we have uh, legislature out there to plant more milkweed along highways to maybe give more money through the farm bill or other programs to uh, farmers to have prairie strips in their uh, their cornfields and soybean fields. Where that milkweed will thrive and it will provide uh, habitat, because that monarch has a really long way to fly. I mean, it flies thousands of miles both ways. So it needs uh, the milkweed. It needs um, it needs nutrients. It needs nectar uh, both on the way up and on the way down south. So also planting. I think Erica was alluding to this before. Uh, the adults need nectar. So, planting stuff that uh, blooms earlier, blooms middle of the year, and then blooms at the end of the year. I know goldenrods get a bad rap, but there's a good goldenrod for any habitat, the same way like there's a good milkweed for any habitat. Put those in your garden. They're so beautiful. Um, they literally buzz with pollinators, and they are a great source of nectar. Um, nutrients for the monarch butterfly um, migrating south. So, combining your golden rods with few asters, that purple, yellow, or blue, yellow um, color is is just beautiful for any garden.
3: Uh, and uh, we have had a question here from uh, a colleague of yours and a friend of the show, Trevor Edmondson. Hey, Trevor! I'm glad he's watching.
4: <laughs> he's watching.
3: Um and so the scientists are watching today also so uh don 't screw it up folks um he he now also, I feel under pressure <laughs> no you don 't uh he says uh, i 've heard that mo- monarchs prefer swamp milkweed if given – whoa the light just went out that 's not good uh if given the uh, the choice um uh sw- is what kinds of milkweed should people be planting
5: okay. Uh, It's a great question. So as Iza said, um, you know, there's a milkweed for every situation. And I always say that the milkweed you should plant is the one that you you like and you want to take care of. Um, And that grows in your yard. Yeah, and it grows in your yard. You know, if you you have a, a heavy clay, wet soil, don't try to plant a butterfly weed, although it will grow in a pot um so you you can do butterfly milkweed in a pot uh you can do swamp milkweed in a in a container in a pot they both do well the butterfly milkweed is probably less likely to come back the next year in a pot than a swamp mm-hmm. milkweed um but
3: we do have right, wait, wait can, I, can i can i can i jump in here but yeah, yeah. the part of the problem with that and i've tried okay. to i've tried to the grow tuberosa yeah uh, yeah, Asclepias tuberosa, uh, or yeah. known as butterfly weed, it's the orange one, which I've tried yeah. to
6: grow.
3: Right, and I've tried yeah. to grow it in my yard unsuccessfully, and I don't even have yeah. uh, terrible clay soil, um, but yeah. it uh, it drains pretty well in here. Um, and you said it might not come back in a pot, but it takes a, a few years for it to reach its maturity. So how do you reconcile that? So I, so, I have to say, like we years oh, ago.
5: No, no, go ahead, Erica. Oh. So, I, I mean, I think if people are going to do it, if we, and then we'll answer Trevor's question. It If you're going to do something in a container, swamp milkweed is the one I would pick. I, I know people who start uh, butterfly milkweed indoors and then have it as a container plant um, in the... Uh, In the for the growing season and then it often doesn't come back sometimes it will so you're probably not going to get a flower it's more of uh Mm -hmm. because you want to do it although we have somebody in the project who has butterfly milkweed very successfully growing in a container
4: yeah
5: Uh uh so we should we should have them on um but to answer trevor's question from our data so we have vastly orders of magnitude more data from common milkweed than anything else it's by far the most common, uh, of people (laughs) doing our project.
4: We have about the same amount,
5: yeah, we have about the same amount of data from swamp milkweed, uh, and Canada and, uh, butterfly milkweed. And so there is preference shown to common milkweed in, in our data currently, but we have a lot more data from that. So it's hard to draw that conclusion. Um, Between Inconyatta and butterfly milkweed, we see uh, Mm -hmm. more success right now. And this is only two years of data with uh, swamp milkweed. However, I will say one thing I I wonder about is it's much harder to find eggs and caterpillars on a mature butterfly milkweed. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a lot more leaves and branches. And so some of that could be just you you do have to see them.
4: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. It's harder to see the munching patterns to know if they're there.
5: Yeah, you're not going to miss like a a full fifth instar, you know, almost ready to go into a chrysalis-sized caterpillar. Those are multiple inches long, but the little ones are quite easy to miss. So you have to factor that in with any data. I mean, uh, Mm -hmm. citizen community science collected or uh, collected by a scientist.
3: Okay, we need to take uh, a... We've we've got more questions coming. It's kind of interesting. We've got the question about the... uh, uh, the red bugs on uh on milkweed plants uh which ah yes that's aphids. The,
4: well no not necessarily, mm. no and I don't... The sw- well this or or the the milkweed bugs milkweed
3: yeah, yeah. uh insects uh, yeah. so uh but let... also
4: lots of aphids too
3: yeah yeah um, I don't worry about aphids, basically, but especially not on milkweed, that's for sure. Uh, it, all right, it's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back. Uh, we'll even show some uh, uh, photos here uh, to give uh, folks help with uh, the project. Uh, we shall return. You have the ability to give your soil a superpower. It's called composting. If you don't have a backyard, you need to contact Collective Resource Compost. CRC has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010. They bring you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter from your kitchen. They swap it out and get it to a commercial composting operation. Fight climate change. Go to CollectiveResource.us.
4: At this time of year, we spend a lot of time indoors with our plants, so help them thrive. The plants you're viewing were treated with Leafzyme, a foliage spray designed to activate beneficial microbes already present on the leaves. A spritz every few weeks promotes growth-enhancing microorganisms that process dust and other particles into nutrition that indoor plants can absorb through their leaves for beautiful and vigorous growth. Go to blazing-star.com and check out their bio-garden line for home gardeners.
3: From small boat fishermen to your dinner table with safe, free, no-contact delivery, Sitka Salmon Shares brings premium wild Alaska seafood to your door. They're a community-supported fishery offering shares just like your local CSA. All fish is wild-caught in season with respect for the limits of the ocean, line-caught and traceable to their fleet. Use promo code Novak 25 for $25 off the first month of a share. Go to sitkasalmonshares.com slash N-O-W-A-K. And welcome back to the show. I'm sending you, Peggy, I'm sending you something that, uh, odd thing. Did you get a text, uh, from Rick DeMaio? Yes. Uh, Yes, and I'm
4: familiar with what he's talking about vaguely.
3: You are? Okay, see, I'm unaware of that. Um, It was on the, uh, the Facebook site we were looking at right before the show started. Oh, was it? Okay. Um, do you want to mention this by, by any chance? Um,
4: Rick might mention it.
3: Okay. All right. There's, there's, uh. I, see, I hadn't heard about it at all, um, and uh, it's, it's and now we're yeah. gonna, we're just teasing people here, um, but I I don't want to talk about something if I don't have a a, a little more uh, information about it. Uh, so I I will take a I'll take a quick peek at the ten o'clock break at it. Uh, uh, if you can, that that would be helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, welcome back to. We also my, had a go uh, ahead. Go ahead. Go, no, no, you go ahead. There was a,
4: no. There's a question from. Uh, YouTube I want to bring up, but go ahead.
3: Well, just doing my standard radio intro. Exactly. That's why I said Yes. (laughs) Don't interrupt the announcer, please. Uh, Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Uh, We've got Isabella Rodlinski on the show and Erica Hassel, both from the Field Museum at the uh, Keller Science Action Center. Um, And uh, we're talking about the Monarch Community Science Monitoring and – and this project uh, is about to uh, get going in earnest. We should mention this before we forget, is that you're going to have some training sessions coming up, and that's kind of the reason you guys are here. So uh, who wants to talk about the uh, the training sessions?
5: I'll, I'll go. Do you want me to go, Isa? Ah. Sure.
3: Okay. Oh, boy
5: uh so i am of course like what are the exact You're... dates
3: um <laughs> calling them up now on the screen right may 12th 15th uh, and 27th. 27th well there's four i thought yeah, yeah. well one's one's uh... advanced
4: training
0: oh okay and we will also have trainings in spanish in june um to connect with our latino friends who uh you don't know, have a strong cultural connection to the monarch butterfly and many of the uh, Mexican-Americans in Chicago come from the Michoacan region, where the monarchs overwinter. Um, so we are doing a big push to connect the cultural uh, benefit and the scientific benefit into one wholesome, beautiful thing. But go ahead, Erica.
5: Yeah, so what I was to say is we um, we invite folks, anyone to participate in this project, all you need is one milkweed plant to start with although we'll help you out with that if you don't yet have one so the trainings are um may 12th 15th and 27th and we try to have them there's like a lunch one there's like a weekend morning one there's an evening one we will have some more in june if those days don't don't happen to work for you and these are on zoom this is something we discovered in 2020 is that this part where we like tell you what we're asking you to do, which is to look once a week at your plants, tell us how many eggs and caterpillars. We have a little web form that you fill out. Um, and then once in July, we actually ask, ask you to measure the, the size of your garden, um, just because that helps us with understanding like what these gardens look like. And then in late June or sometimes in early June, depending on where in the city you are, we will have these socially distant COVID safe plants where we give away um, a milkweed plant and mm-hmm. if we can at those sites we will have flagged um, milkweed that's growing in the ground that has an egg or a caterpillar on it so you can see one in in real life because that's the part that's harder to it means impossible to do over zoom to really convey like what exactly people are u- looking for and so we have a, a, a website um, which if you do bit.ly slash monarchmonitors You can register on there. We'll give you all the information. And that's the site where you would record your data. So we want to make it easy for folks and folks can look on there. We have a lot of resources in both English and Spanish. Um, There will be additional Spanish language trainings uh, as soon as we hire our uh, staff to help with that. And I should say that these milkweed plants are entirely possible because ESA grows them at UIC.
0: I think saying that I grow them is um, a big overstatement. We have a beautiful collaboration <laughs> with the UIC greenhouse, and uh, they do most of the dirty work for for us. Uh, we start the plants there. I get the seeds. I stratify them. We plant them, and then they nurture the plants uh, in the greenhouse. And around this time now, they start taking them out to um, hardy them off so we can plant them. And we have um, butterfly weed uh, that we, uh, you know, potentially can give to participants. So that's tuberosa. We have the swamp or rose milkweed. Rose milkweed um, is being rebranded because having the word weed and swamp in one name is just not a good PR strategy. Nope. So that's the nope, that's nope. the one that can take a little bit of shade and can take moist soils as well as full sun. And then we have world milkweed because it's a little versatile plant that you know you can pop into those empty spots in your garden. I like that one because it's it's not big, um, it's delicate. It's it's sort of um, yeah, it's very fine leaves, like yeah, fine leaves, and uh, and a caterpillar can totally munch it down. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, so people can uh, pick, and usually we try to also pair that with a. Uh, Late blooming uh, nectar source that uh, can benefit the monarchs as they're migrating south. Yeah. And so they're... all the participants uh, qualify for that, and we're going to have those drop-ups, drop-off sites throughout the Chicagoland. So there'll be one on the north side, and south side, and west side, and northwest, and southwest, um, and maybe some even in Gary, Indiana. Are yeah. there and
3: are there don't... are there species of milkweed you would not recommend people? Uh, for instance, the annual milkweed that is, seems to be an issue in California because it 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 doesn't yes. uh, it it continues to bloom yeah. and it and it's a source of disease for uh, monarch butterflies.
4: And somebody on YouTube asked about the tropical milkweed as well. Uh, that's, yes, that's, so that's, that is the tropical yeah. milkweed. Yeah.
0: Please do not plant the tropical milkweed. And Erica can testify to it. She saw it blooming on uh, election day. Uh, So, you know, it it does few things. It doesn't always die back and it can harbor a lot of uh, disease that then once it gets into a monarch population can help to or help to decimate it. But, you know, it can can be another reason, another paper cut, uh, the death of a thousand paper cuts. Um, Mm -hmm. so, So. don't do that also it encourages some monarchs not to migrate because in their head they're like hey this might be a different time of the year and look at all this milkweed blooming and climate change ain't helping with that because you know it's warm milkweeds blooming it can be October well it is um, so try not to do the the uh, tropical milkweed there are so there's a milkweed for any habitat some are a lot um, harder to grow than others.
3: Go ahead, Mike. Oh, I was just going to say, there's a lot of um, different kinds of milkweed out there, and they're specific to certain areas of of the world and and certainly the country and North America. So you should, what I've always uh, heard, is pick the milkweed for your area, and there's a number Mm -hmm. of them to choose from. And, you know, for instance, the Midwest. Get Midwest milkweed uh, and... uh, and uh, there are, are uh, different varieties that, that you can find, and you guys, of course, are, are encouraging folks to try different varieties as well. Um, by the way, I was just looking up the, the milkweed bug, and that's what it's called, small milkweed bug. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ligeus calmei uh, is the Latin. Um, primarily seed eater. They're opportunistic uh, and generalists, uh, according to the U- University of California. Um and uh, they'll get protein from wherever they can find it. Um, and uh, the the bugs have few predators. They feed on milkweed, which makes them distasteful. And that's – it seems to me it's kind of a side. If, if if a bug is orange, leave it alone because <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's been ingested. It has
0: bright colors. Uh, it's yeah. trying to warn you. And a, and
4: a big red X on its back. Stay away.
3: Yeah. So – uh and from what I understand you were nodding there Erica uh the milkweed bug is is not a particular problem for anybody.
5: No, I mean uh so I think one of the things that um you know we've done this project we did it in 2019 it was our pilot year and then we did it in 2020 the pandemic year. So I'm I'm excited to have what I hope will be a slightly more normal year this year. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. but one of the things that people shared for with us is how much, you know, I said, we were worried about asking people to collect data for us every week. Cause that, that can be a lot of work, especially if you have a lot of milkweed plants. But what we found is people were looking more often and they were noticing things that they had never noticed before. Last year, a lot of aphids, um, uh-huh. people see the milkweed bugs. they will see Japanese beetles. They'll see spiders that they haven't seen before. And so I think that's one of the great things about the project is when you focus on one small thing, like an egg, you suddenly notice all it's like a different scale of looking at your garden. Um, And I I maybe didn't notice problems in my garden because I was focusing on these small things. So yeah, maybe young um, mocha beetles might occasionally eat uh, an egg or even a small caterpillar that has been reported, but it's not thought of as a major predator. Um, There's a great, uh, group called the monarch joint venture I know that's kind of an Mm -hmm. odd name but their website has a ton of information specifically about gardening about the insects that we know about um, just a lot of these questions so you know I'm enjoying answering them but if uh, if we don't answer a question I highly recommend uh, their resources and they have created things um, that are like very printable and shareable so if Uh, you maybe have a neighbor or an HOA who is not as supportive of what you're doing. There are some resources there that you could share
0: with them. Um, Also penetrate the HOA and start changing the rules so that everyone uh, gardens with native plants. And if you have a contractor that you hire a contractor that gardens with native plants.
3: I'm glad you brought that up. I imagine HOAs uh, can be uh, among your worst enemies here when it's trying to get, especially milkweed, anything called a weed, yeah, And HOA is going to say, nope, can't have that. We can't have that. And it, it's bad enough that, that a lot of them say, well, not growing any vegetables either um, because uh, it might yeah. attract rats.
4: Not putting in those messy milkweeds. Right,
5: Isa has the right strategy. You know, it's an infiltrate and overthrow scenario. Um,
4: <laughs> yes. And as you said, choose the right landscaper too.
5: Yeah, we should, uh, throw a plug to our card, our, uh, colleagues who are working to, um, change the Chicago, uh, landscaping ordinance, uh, to, you would have to register your garden, but then you could within the rules in Chicago have plants over. Whatever the current rule, current rule, ten or eight. Ten inches, inches uh, which
0: is ridiculous, because even your hostas, which I don't like, are over ten inches.
3: Anything's over ten inches. A daffodil out there is 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 more than ten inches tall. Uh, I, I, we have talked about that uh, issue on this show uh, and the proposed uh, native plant registry for City of Chicago, mm-hmm. um, and I, I have issues with it. Uh, it might be a way to keep people from getting fines uh, for growing natives in their yards. Um, I think it's going to cause more chaos, but um, what do I know? Uh, maybe maybe it will uh, accomplish some good. Uh, the 10-inch rule seems to have come out of nowhere in the mists of time. It's been there forever, and for some reason, every municipality in the country thinks that 10 inches is the uh, appropriate height at which to stop plants you know and 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 go out in nature and find see how many 10 inch (laughs) plants below 10 inches you can find uh good luck with that uh so it's it's uh i don't know i don't know where that's going but let's move on here um and show some photos before we uh, lose the opportunity to to do that and this is one we were talking about uh at the beginning uh uh, this is a uh, Asclepias tuberosa butterfly weed. So this is the plant that I cannot grow. Uh, but, uh, uh other people can, uh, <laughs> tell us a we'll little bit.
0: We'll make sure to give you a couple this year. Yeah. Uh, give, and
3: yeah. and I'll try them again. And, I, you know, this time I, I can tell you one, one thing that's happened. Sometimes I lose track of them. I plant them and then I forget that I've planted them. And then, uh, instead of, you know, helping them through that first year, I've forgotten they were there mm-hmm. and, and you, and then they're gone. Um, and it, we've, we've mentioned this, anything else you want to say about this, uh, about, uh, the butterf- butterfly weed? It's, if you have
0: a big, sunny, uh, not even a big, but a sunny, drier spot, this can be our plant. Uh, it's uh, really beautiful, it grows up to about knee high, Uh might not bloom the first year, it might be year two or three when it blooms, but when it does, it's quite a show that it puts up, yep. and many things will be attracted to it. It's not just the monarch butterfly, um, and uh, yeah, it, it will start growing and sprawling, and you know, native plants sleep, creep, and then they leap. Except so, in my yard. Um, except in your yard, except but you know, so that makes it the rule, right? Cause every, <laughs> every exception makes the rule. So, um, yeah,
3: okay. And, uh, and
4: you could try a different place in your yard too.
3: Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I will do that too, but I've already tried that. Um, all right. What have we got here? So you got a
5: monarch caterpillar. So this is what we're having people look for. Uh, it's on a common milkweed and I think, I think we shared this in part just because um, sometimes people, when we say like you're going to look for a caterpillar, they first think that they're like hairy or maybe hard to find. Um, <laughs> after the sort of first few days, they're they're pretty easy to find, um, even on your large, you know, common milkweed plant.
3: Are those are those tiny caterpillars uh, nearby? The white things. What are those? Are those caterpillars?
5: No,
0: I. Eza, what, what's your take um it's,
5: they're not
0: aphids I, I, they're not aphids at first i thought that maybe they're like you know when the caterpillar was growing and shedding its skin that might be parts of it but i'm not completely sure because usually the caterpillars once they uh, grow <laughs> and shed they eat that because that's an important nutrient yeah. uh, protein yeah. source
3: All I got to say is a lot going on on that uh, milkweed leaf. Yeah, Uh, you know,
0: someone once said that a milkweed is a milkweed metropolis because it attracts so many different insects and then some insects eat those insects. And so it's a full circle of life on this one plant.
3: Uh, Let's look at this. Um, This is messy and neat. That's the name, the title of it. But I'm telling you, I, I was thinking about this when I was loading it last night. They look the same to me. I don't think one is any neater than the other or messier than the other. Why do you say messy and neat?
0: Well, I think we we uh, a lot of people hesitate uh, gardening with native plants for many reasons. One is because you know all my favorite plants have the word weed in it: thimbleweed, Joe Pye <laughs> weed, ironweed, uh, milkweed. Um, we need to have a PR campaign for those plants. But you can actually arrange them to look like a traditional garden. And uh, especially if you're doing it with seedlings or plugs, it's easy to do. Uh, but sometimes they can have a wilder look. And if you're into that, I'm into that. That's fine, too. And, you know, um, also as plants grow in and come in, they will start filling in those um, Empty spots and maybe having a um, sort of a line where one species ends and the other begins, it's more fuzzy. And that is okay. But if people want to have that traditional feel feel to uh, a garden where it sounds like, you know, um, like Lurie gardens, they're all native plants. Some are cultivars, um, but they have that very like traditional garden feel to them. There's crisp lines between where one species ends and the other one begins. And some gardens uh, don't have that, and that's okay too.
3: Well, you know, the, the the answer is have Pete Udolph come and design your garden, and then everything's going to yes. be absolutely, you know,
0: <laughs> because we can all afford that on a small scale but in I'm, our urban yard.
3: But I like the way both of these gardens look. Uh, that's, that's oh, the I do too. Thing. Yeah, I think they're fine. And here's a here's another one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: So yeah, are, so that's no, my no, no, mom's a, why are, front of uh, the yard.
3: Oh, that's your mom's.
0: That's my mom's front yard. And my mom uh, was a traditional gardener, you know, with her dahlias and roses and peonies and all of that. And I started just giving her uh, native plants. And because I'm like my mother, I can't say no to free plants. Um, (laughs) She started incorporating native plants into her garden. So now she has this beautiful garden with something blooming from now through November. And a lot of it is native plants in there, but she also, you know, has her traditional garden uh, native plants in there, uh, and it's and it's fine. So the, the message we're trying to tell people here is: if you have a traditional garden, you don't have to get rid of those plants to incorporate a native plant. You can incorporate a native plant into what's already existing.
3: And and you can see the rose bush on the end there, um, and that's uh, certainly a, a traditional. Uh, plant uh it, it looks like it's being pushed out by some of the uh the other plants but uh, it's, yeah
0: american like... uh the the tall bell flower is uh has become very evident in that garden but she also has some milkweeds uh she has asters she fell in love with shorts aster uh so now she like propagates that and gives it to her neighbors um Ah. She's a great advocate, and like I always, uh, you know, people walk by her yard and are like, "What do you do?" And she's like, "Well, those are those wild plants." She calls them wild
3: plants. Wild plants. So I like cute. that. Speaking of wild plants, um, this is a plug for the uh, Field Museum. Obviously, um, we've got uh, you uh, advocate small and large gardens. You're saying that you can grow natives even in tiny gardens, like the one on the right.
0: Correct. Uh, so you, you, you don't need a uh, hundred thousand square feet of space like we have outside of the Field Museum with our rice native gardens. And those are free for everyone to enjoy. Uh, so if you're in the area, pop in, see how that's uh, evolving. But you can see this is a small garden on the back of a patio and there's a, a rose milkweed or swamp milkweed be- behind those uh, purple plants just flopped in there. And it's a small space, it's an urban space, and it's incorporating that native plant into uh, an array of uh, what you would call a traditional or conventional garden gardening.
3: And we talked about the various types of milkweed. Um, is this something that you will be handing out uh, or that you can find on the site? It's got the various types of milkweed up there uh, at the top, that row of photos at the top.
0: Yes, so um, we create these field guides uh, that are a guide to nature, uh, and we have many on birds, and Doug can probably talk to that later on. Uh, but we have them for caterpillars, uh, sorry, for butterflies, and for plants, and for street trees. Uh, pretty much, it's a free resource. You can go to fieldguides.fieldmuseum.org and choose Chicago as your area and um, you'll see what's available and this is one to creating a habitat uh, for the monarch in the midwestern garden so it has different types of milkweed some of them more common ones you know we then put meads milkweed which is uh, has a threatened and endangered status on there Um, but those are things you can grow it tells you um, a little bit about their habitat and then it also gives you some other plants to plant for the
3: monarchs. And you can see some of them here, these, some of the different milkweeds uh, growing in, in different uh, situations. Um, and I wanted to pop this up uh, as well. Uh, can, folks can get a hold of one of these signs, can't they? Right,
0: Erica, yes. I want
5: to take that one? Yeah, so we'll be giving these away at the plant distributions. Uh, it's something people have asked us for, for the last couple of years is they want to like acknowledge, uh, what they're doing and share it with their neighbors. So we finally had some budget to get these yard mm-hmm. sites printed. Um, nice. so those would be available for pickup. And the, the other side is like, um, educational. Uh, this side is more of, more of our like political message or not political, but our, our message, you know, like, this is why I'm doing this, um. So we wanted to have that. And folks, also, there's a QR code and the link to our site. Mm-hmm. So if your neighbors want to join in, um, you know, it's, it's not, it's never, I mean, there there's a period when it's too late to join, but we welcome people joining, uh, you know, in June and July. July is the big month uh, for Monarch Eggs and Caterpillars in Chicago.
4: And you do need to sign up for the training initially to take part.
5: We do, yeah, yeah. So we we want people to sign up for the trainings. There's some in May. There'll be more in June. We just haven't put them on the calendar. I think we we like folks who, you know, start early uh and get in on the May training and get us those those first few weeks of data um in in uh June are often really low, sometimes zeros. That's okay. Again, we that really helps us to know where they're kind of getting their foothold. But uh some people don't think to start in, or consider doing a training until they've already seen a mark in June. Yeah. And that's okay. We got you. We'll have some trainings <laughs> uh, later in the year.
4: Yeah. Yes, Peggy. And before we run out of time, Isa, you're also going to be doing a presentation right. tomorrow.
0: Um, yes, for uh, Illinois native Wild plants. Ones. Right. So um, I'll um, put a link under uh, the Facebook uh, message that Mike put out and the Twitter message by Illinois Wild Ones has me come over and talk about practical advice to gardening with native plants. So that's tomorrow at 7 p.m. on Zoom.
3: Um, and that's good to know. Uh, also, one more thing before we go, and and uh, your boss is coming up uh, after ten o'clock. Uh, he's I see him in the preview screen. I could, I could. <laughs> he's uh, and, and Bob Dolgan's there too. But uh, uh, that is uh, Doug Stotts, uh, also from the Field Museum. It's a field day we're having here. Uh, <laughs> on the, the best remote. kind of day. The best kind of day um very quickly we just have a couple of minutes here you and i talked the other day erica about uh how the u.s fish and wildlife service was considering uh giving endangered species status to the monarch but has not decided not can you just address that briefly is that a good thing is that a bad thing
5: sure let's do the hard stuff uh yeah (laughs) yeah, so the fish and wildlife service uh, for everyone who doesn't know that that's the branch of our government who's in charge of endangered species. I do not work for the Fish and Wildlife Service. That's very important to say. They were petitioned to list the monarch as an endangered species. And I think, firstly, like most of us, when we think of an endangered species, we think of something that like we've never seen and you know, there's only six of them and like one lake somewhere in the West, but that's not always the case. It's it's a sign that the species is struggling, that they're not doing well, that they're experiencing a significant population decline. So monarchs, you know, I'm not old enough to remember, but people tell me that there used to be clouds of monarchs moving around. And when something sort of slowly disappears, we tend to not notice those small declines, but we do know there's been this significant decline. So their petition to list the species and what they determined was that war- listing was warranted, there was a reason there was a significant risk of losing the population losing the species over time, but that it was precluded because they had other things that were a higher priority and so they would revisit it in 2024. Um, you know. That may change. There could be pressure from uh, organizations who have more of an advocacy role than we do to mm-hmm. make that listing sooner. Certainly the the really dire numbers in the West, uh, if it was possible, but it's not for them to list just the West, that would make sense. And I think there are questions of like, what would it mean if something that anyone in Chicago can definitely see this summer if they want, uh, to be an endangered species. And it, it wouldn't mean that like the milkweed in your backyard, suddenly now you could like get fined for cutting it down. Almost, you know, there are ways for them. The Endangered Species Act is very complicated. Uh, there are ways for them to make that not sort of the critical habitat that there is a legal protection for. But maybe it would give stronger protections to really large grasslands, which are important, not just for monarchs, you know, because that's the secret, right? Like we do a Monarch project because Monarchs are important because people love Monarchs and I love Monarchs and I want people to protect them. But, but also we, we really care about bees and all the other pollinators, Mm -hmm. but like no one is going to have like, no one's going to call me to speak to their kids about beetles. Um, I mean, some, some people would, but most people won't. I would. Uh, There are not, I would absolutely. There are are not fly festivals throughout, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that they invite us to. Um, few people send me photos of their child, like holding a bee, um, <laughs> or, or a fly. Just... Yeah. <laughs> no.
3: Or a milkweed <laughs> bug. Yeah. Or, but, yeah. but milkweed bugs are cool. I'm sorry. There's a lot of insects out there that are ultra cool. And maybe Doug will address that, uh, after 10 o'clock. We're, we're basically, we're out of town time here, but Erica, you took the yeah. hard subject. You did a great job on it. And, uh, uh, yeah, she gets uh, a ring. All right, you. there you go. you get get go. A
0: double ding. <laughs> you get a
3: double dink, uh, and it, boy, that and in in some circles it's a really controversial question about uh, putting uh, monarch butterflies on the endangered species list. Um, and is. we could go for an hour on that alone. But I want to, yeah, yeah, I want to let folks know that all this information we've been talking about. The links are on my website, MikeNovak Go to the this week's show blog. Uh, Erica Hassel and uh, Isabella Redlinski, thank you so much. Uh, good luck, and I hope a lot of people sign up uh, for. Thank the, you. Please the, do the, the the project. Become a citizen science scientist. Uh, and get involved. I I think I might have to do it too and uh, go out there once You're a right. week. And and yep. the one thing that's really great that we forgot to mention is that it teaches people to look on the underside of leaves. Everybody it you does. Know, um, I mean, that's like a critical thing for a gardener. Um mm-hmm. people watch their gardens standing there and looking down and that's what they see. Or yep. Sideways. Rarely do they get on their hands and knees uh and and or crouch down and, and flip over a leaf and there's a lot of stuff going on uh on the undersides and that's one of the the way you find it. Make out. your
5: kids do it. They're short, they're already down there.
0: Great work for <laughs> yeah. children. That's
3: why you and I have kids. Uh oh, yeah, okay. Only I, reason. I didn't even think. That's
0: about. why we also don't feed them completely, so they don't grow up too fast. Uh, very yeah, you good. Keep them small. I'm yeah.
3: Re- yeah. I'm reporting you to the proper <laughs> authorities after this. All right. Uh, thank you. Thank you both for being here. Uh, we'll be back with with more different species on the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki.
7: The best thing about my job is the excitement of uh, waking up every morning just wondering what the challenges are going to be that day.
4: So how do you like my office?
7: We lead with safety. It's the first thing that I think about when I wake up. It's the last thing I think about when I go to
1: bed. We've got a number of employees in the office, myself included, who've been been around for 10, 15 plus years. So people enjoy working for the company. Uh, staff retention is a thing that we're very, very keen
7: on.
5: It's no secret that the world of arboriculture is a male-dominated industry. But there is a fearless group of women out there that are determined to change that. And I'm really proud to be one of those women.
7: At my office, I feel like you could take Just about anyone put a crew together and send them out to a job and have it be successful. And that has to do with trusting the people you work with, feeling safe around them, and knowing their strengths and weaknesses. One of the proudest moments working uh, with Bartlett for me was being the first to do training in a Spanish class. Bartlett is all about promoting
1: from within. We really want to focus on our people and make sure that they're trained, make sure that they understand their role and you slowly grow through your experience and then you improve and, and move on to different roles within the company. There's always new positions, even at a base level, myself included. I started off as a climber and I've worked my way through
7: to being local manager in the office.
5: Bartlett has been really great about recognizing any kind of roadblocks for different genders, different races, people of different nationalities, and just kind of taking a bulldozer to all
8: of those roadblocks.
7: Every tree needs a champion. Every tree needs a champion.
8: Every tree needs a champion.
7: Every tree needs a champion. Every tree needs a champion.
4: Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki green gardening and environment radio
0: with just a soup of humor or is that a dash brought to you by bartlett tree experts every tree needs a champion go to bartlett.com here they are again peggy malecki and mike novak
3: all i need is good food to eat and make me healthy wealthy wide awake lettuce tomatoes and bacon what about those sweet potatoes all I need is good foodie. All I need is good foodie. All I need is good tools to make me music, porches, launcherie. Give me all that I can take. And welcome all back to the show. And uh, we're swapping out scientists to two you know, and I apologize for getting a little bit late into this segment because you get scientists talking and you just <laughs> you just can't yeah, shut it off. Yeah, really. It's it's, but that's why I like it. I like having those folks on the show. People like so that. So we need
4: the three-hour show.
3: Uh, oh, don't, don't even, <laughs> don't, no, don't. Uh, oh my, oh, my heart, my heart just, uh, oh, you yeah. uh, know, it stopped there. Uh, welcome back to the show, folks. And that guy on your right, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, um, also works at the Field Museum, except that he's the senior conservation ecologist, uh, Doug Stotts. Oh, I'll, get, I'll give him a ding as well. Uh, Doug, welcome back to the show. I was looking back uh, through our archives, and I didn't realize how many times you, you've been with us uh, in the past, and then we, we appreciate it every time.
1: Yeah, I don't know how many times I've been on either. Three, maybe? At three, maybe four. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Last
4: August 9th, you and Bob were both on together talking about right. the flowers.
3: And, and uh, there's oh, Bob. Right. Wow. I was
2: trying to think back to that.
3: Uh, yeah, and uh, Bob Dolgan is on the left there, and he's uh, the uh, the creator of the excellent documentary Monty and Rose um, about uh, the piping plovers, or plovers, however you pronounce them, uh, at the lakefront uh, on Lake Michigan in the city of Chicago. Um, and uh, he is also the creator of This Week in Birding, as you can see, and you can go to... <coughs> t.w.i.b.chicago.com. get on the mailing list um you're you're doing some great stuff bob with that uh, newsletter i i'm not even a birder and i read it and uh but you will be
2: you will be you will be yeah that we've, you know that term can be uh you know kind of loaded I, I, everybody's a birder in a way i like to think well so. I, I
3: gotta tell you um I'm noticing more and more. I mean, I'm paying attention to the birds in my yard. Um, there are many more than just sparrows, uh, although I, I like to say I have 10,000 sparrows. I put a feeder, uh, the feeder, took it out of the back and put it to the front so that it, the seed can drop on the sidewalk and not into my garden. Um, and uh, there was a um, a house sparrow there uh, with the red um house finch. house finch house finch sorry not <laughs> house house finch. house finch sorry house finch um i was uh, there were a couple of them this morning uh that i was i oh, was great. looking at yeah but, see
4: you do have birds yeah this i do yeah.
3: and and a squirrel kept jumping on the feeder this morning as well but the well, squ- they, wow.
4: they they literally knocked one of mine on the ground this morning so yeah i get that
3: yeah <laughs> So the reason you guys are here today is uh, because of good news um, uh, from the city of Chicago, from the Chicago Park District. Uh, I, uh, it, it, it's something that, Bob, you and I were going to talk about uh, several weeks ago. We said we've got to get back on the show so you can uh, advocate for what just happened uh, so uh, events beat us to the punch here. Uh, and, Bob, why don't you explain uh, what happened uh, at Montrose Beach?
2: Sure. So uh, I'll go back uh, for your listeners. They may, they may or may not know about the whole story of Monty and Rose, our endangered piping plovers that began to nest at Montrose Beach uh, now almost two years ago. Um, these birds hadn't nested in Chicago since 1955 so it was quite quite a quite a surprise and also a thrill to have them in the city again and um going back to that time i don't think anybody could have envisioned that the one of the outcomes of their presence would be additional uh natural habitat out in the dune ecosystem there at Montrose Beach dunes it's our only state natural area on the north side and um it's been reduced a bit because of rising lake michigan water levels and it's a small parcel it's on, it's only about Uh, you know, 12 acres or so. And what happened was with the, you know, this is my interpretation of events. Maybe others would see it a different way. But I'll just say, having been out at the beach a lot last summer, the summer of 2020, when it was closed to the public, um, is a lot of uh, plants began to recolonize the area that was temporarily closed for the plovers. And um, this was what about a three turned out to be about a three acre area that had been roped off, and has this sort of standing water that we affectionately call a fluddle, a flooded puddle, or some combination of those words. It's called a fluddle, and that's where the plovers have fed the past two years. And and as it was roped off, it just started to make sense that maybe that area should become permanently part of the official Montrose Dunes Natural Area. And um, and so there were some steps that were taken. A request was made by site steward Leslie Bournes, and the Park District started considering it. It took some time over the winter. Uh, there are a number of uh, letters written and emails and calls. Uh, but eventually, just last week, it was approved, and there will be uh, three acres added to the 12 acres that uh, were already there at Montrose Beach Dunes. And it may not seem like much. It's only three acres, but in... Uh, in a big city, um, you know where there's precious real estate of all kinds, uh, let alone uh, natural areas out out there on the lakefront. Um, this was a this is a, a big success and it just it means that the plovers will have uh, more room to roam, uh, hopefully when they come back this year. They won't be dealing with um, with everything from volleyballs to to kids with sand buckets to uh, passersby going into their area, but instead this will be a more formally protected area and it will still be open to the public when the plovers aren't there. So, yeah. um, you know, it's it just a success on so mm-hmm. many levels. Additionally, um, with the water levels so high, having that natural barrier is, is going to be great too. And, yeah, um, and it actually all, despite the many uses of Montrose beach, people were in favor of this, the volleyball players, the, mm-hmm. uh, everybody, everybody, the business owners, um, thought this was a good idea so it, it just shows what what's possible when uh when people come together so hopefully it's the start of other big things it's it's a remark I, was- I was just gonna say it's a
3: remarkably forward-looking action by the chicago park district it's just um it, it, it i don't think anybody expected it to be this
2: easy
4: <laughs> you know uh
2: and 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 as
4: informal too it wasn't a long drawn-out process
2: right exactly yeah and it was yeah, it was kind of like on I mean having not gone through that before. The process was a little bit unclear at times, I'll be honest, but um but it was uh I mean it was a success and uh mm-hmm. it it you know we got the aldermen's backing and um it took some time, but we also have like an amazing community of people out there. It's come around come together around the Plovers. A lot of people who didn't even know each other before 2 years ago and are are friends yeah. now and yeah. and you've got the boat owners there, you've got the uh, the restaurant, uh, visitors and customers, the kayak rentals, everybody is, is sort of rallied around this story and it, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. So, so yeah, Doug, we're glad.
3: <laughs> uh, so Doug, one of the things was when we were talking the other day, uh, you were saying that, you know, some really, really good, uh, people at the park district, uh, who are, are, are good at their science and, and good at what they do. Um, that probably
1: had a lot to do with this, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, the park district, you know, is a huge multifaceted organization and different people have different ideas of what parks should be used for. But they, one thing they do have is they have a really high-quality team that works on natural areas. And we've done a lot of work with them elsewhere in the city. And they are great people it you know we're really lucky to have a team like that and it makes all the difference in the world for Mm -hmm. the park district being important for conservation
3: um so let's talk about what uh uh, bob mentioned uh, in in this uh this turn of events uh, we're adding 1.3 acres you were t- you were also talking to me the other day that you know you've been working in South America and you're dealing with millions of acres of land uh, and the changes that you want to make to that how much effect can adding
1: 1.3 acres to
3: a 12 acre site
1: how much difference can it make well, first, if Bob can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've got it reversed. I think it's, 3. Sorry, 3.1. Yeah, it's 3, 3.1 acres. point one eight. I'm sorry, three
2: point one. I'm sorry, three point one acres. Don't take away our
1: two acres. I'm
3: so sorry. <laughs> you, yeah, you're right? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I, and I, because I was saying one acre the other day, and I and I went back and looked at the numbers. I went, no, it's three acres, and I'm sorry. So I got it's three point one, not one point three. But I'm just being a little dyslexic there. So yeah,
2: three th- th- three acres. We we need that, and the plovers <laughs> need that. So. Don't do that to us, Mike. (laughs) I'm so sorry.
3: Don't worry. I have no influence with the park district. None at all. Believe me. (laughs) Uh, So, what can that difference can that make, Doug?
1: So, you know, the it's a different. It's an entirely different scale, of course, and we live in a state where, you know, the vast majority of the state has been altered into. you know, cities and cornfields and um, reservoirs and whatnot. And so so we have relatively little land to begin with. And what I'd say is when you've got that little land, little pieces can make a big difference. Now, 3.1 acres is not going to get us a jaguar, you know. <laughs> there are other reasons <laughs> we won't have jaguars, but but that's not sort of the scale. But you just heard you know, Issa and Erica talking about the monarch, and for a bird, for an animal like that, 3.1 acres can make a huge difference. And sort of the same thing here on the lakefront for um, the water birds, you know, the plovers and other shorebirds that migrate through here, and a set of land birds that breed in the dune vegetation, mm-hmm. are sort of used to a situation where you have a very narrow strand of habitat that's that's patchy. And so, but having a bigger patch can make it a better patch. And that's what we're getting at Montrose. You know, the, the park district has created other habitat pay, patches at other beaches as well. So there's uh, the Southeast end of rainbow beach has restored mm-hmm. dune habitat. Um, there's restored dune habitat down in Jackson park. There's the, um, you know, uh, the bigger habitat that's there at, um, uh, I've Northern Okay. Northern <laughs> Island. There we go. Um, so, so these patches of habitat along the lakefront are sort of stepping stones for a lot of migratory birds. And, you know, Montrose is a place where, you know, I, I hate to say this. I don't go birding there because there are too many birders there. But far <laughs> and away, that's a whole story. <laughs> it's far and away the best place for migratory birds along the lakefront. And that's both land birds and water birds. It's the, you know, If you want to see shorebirds along Lake, Lake Michigan, you go to Montrose. Uh, and that was before Monty and Rose. Yeah. So uh, it's
3: uh, and what I'm going to do here is bring up. Uh, well, let's first of all. Sorry, sorry, folks. Yeah. I well,
4: well, well. You're bringing that up. I'm okay, just wondering because the the lakefront didn't have people for the most part for the last year, and so the birds were able to expand a little bit, anyways. And now they're getting this extra portion of the habitat you think that those combined are going to have an even better effect
1: yeah i think it will it will have an an, an effect the issue is going to be of course people have a lot of pent-up desire to hit the beach this year because they yeah. didn't get a chance yeah. to do it much last year so i suspect you know the lakefront will not be empty this summer um although there's still going to be some some restrictions i suspect mm-hmm. but um you know, the, uh, there was no question that the not having people on the lakefront meant there was a lot more act, opportunity for nature on the lakefront. And and the shorebirds are an important example of this. The main threat to them is disturbance.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, so when you do things to reduce the disturbance, that helps them quite a bit. And, you know, at Montrose part of the turning point there was the creation of the first sanctuary area which fenced off a little bit of the beach for basically the shorebirds to take advantage of and it worked you know
3: yeah and 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 that's that that's the danger is and i'm now i want to pop this up here so you can see this is the uh fluddle, uh right uh, bob
2: yeah, that's right. That, that, excuse me, that's where Monty and Rose have, uh, and other, many other shorebird species have foraged, uh, the past two years. Yeah. Now, is,
3: is this the area that's being added? or yeah.
2: this is right in the heart of the area that will be added. And, uh, previously it had to be temporarily roped off. Um, but, but now it'll be, um, it'll be, uh, more permanently, uh, roped, uh, and the, the, um, uh, the land there uh, will also be maintained, and so there will be uh, work done uh, around the amount of vegetation and making sure that it's it's uh, the right right <clears throat> right mix of open sand and vegetation that plovers like. Yeah,
3: it, and uh, and that's part of the deal here. If to people looking at this, uh, they're going
2: to say, "Well, that doesn't look like much." um <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, does, it just looks like a little uh it's a flood you know, it, it's a flood yeah well it's interesting that term flood i just learned my I, I kind of use it like i throw it around all the time and so do people out at Montrose and a lot of people don't know what this term means but it is just a combination of the word flood mm-hmm. and puddle and it's the sort of standing water we get yeah. especially in spring all over chicago and almost any ball field or farm field or uh or woodland um but here here it's it's almost year round it, it there's, yeah. there's some of it is fed by lake michigan so,
4: so would this actually be the interdunal wetland or is that a different designation
2: yeah that, that uh i i'm not sure if that would count as an interdunal wetland some it, it may i i that might be a little beyond my uh what i could say authoritatively but it's somewhat like that i mean it it somewhat mimics these sort of uh, dune and swale habitats that you mm-hmm. see more in places like indiana dunes and the, you know this is truly a dune and swale habitat when you're, this is a very small scale compared to indiana dunes or sleeping bear dunes or somewhere like that where you mm-hmm. uh where you have just a lot of these you know more steep-sided kind of um you know uh dunes where, where water collects um but yeah i mean it's uh it it does the job i mean there's enough in uh these uh wetlands for uh for the plover the adult plovers and and the young ones to for find forage um you know it attracts all sorts of species like i've said shorebirds herons um you name it and um yeah, i think one of the things that swallows are, gotcha. are flitting around there uh we've got the bank swallow colony which unto itself is is a phenomena over there at montrose beach and so there it's, it's really beneficial, as Doug said, that in terms of shorebirds on Lake Michigan, and when you think about how many places can shorebirds even stop when they're going, these are birds that go from, say, South America all the way to the Arctic. How many places, many of them, how many places can they stop? Like, like where are the places to stop? And we need to have this sort of mosaic of stopover points if they're going to make it. And, you know, I was uh, saying to some folks last week, like, This is a win not just for Chicago birds, but all those birds that that use that area on their way going north or or going south, um, they need these places. And if we don't protect them or if we just let, you know, dogs run all over the beach, they're not going to come back or they're going to be disturbed. And that's going to lead to higher mortality and and perhaps the numbers not going the right way.
3: So what kind of birds, uh, Doug, can we uh, expect to be seeing uh, at this time of year coming through Chicago?
1: So it's still early. Um, you know, bird watchers are bad this way. So as soon as it warms up in, in March, you start thinking about all the birds that should be here. And it's, you know, I go out and it's still early, you know, early in April. So a lot of stuff isn't quite here yet. The shorebirds yeah. are starting to arrive. So things like uh, pectoral sandpiper, yellow legs, killdeer um some of the early shorebirds are are in starting to come through um it will the migratory shorebirds actually peak in the latter part of may and i remember a number of years ago when we were talking about trying to sort of balance between the birders and the birds and and other uses at montrose the uh this was the Department of Environment, and they said, oh, so all we really need to worry about is the migratory periods of spring and fall. And I said, well, the problem with that is spring goes until mid-June, and fall starts the 4th of July weekend. (laughs) So, uh, You know, there's there's not much time in between those periods. And and until Monty and Rose, basically, you know, the big thing at Montrose was this migratory movement, you know, all these migrant shorebirds coming through for, mm-hmm. from basically March until October or November, but then Monty and Rose decided to make it their summer home. And now we have a new component to it. You know, For many years, that's been the best place to see migratory piping plovers. You know, they'd stop on their way north. And I really thought piping plovers were gone from Illinois and would not come back. So it's just so stunning that this has happened and even more stunning this happened at Montrose
3: it's it it is amazing and uh, speaking of Monty and Rose uh, uh, as we mentioned before Bob uh, did a that documentary a couple of years ago and now you're working on part two so this is the point at which I give you uh, a quick plug let's take a look at uh, at your trailer
8: Something interesting was happening with these plovers in that it it wasn't such an impossibility that maybe we'd have plovers that could nest here. When Monty and Rose came, that changed everything. After last season, I think many of us really wondered whether we'd see those birds again they go through migration, which can be a very dangerous journey.
7: When we heard they were
8: back, it was really exciting. I never dreamed that the dunes would develop as they have and become as biodiverse and important for birds. I think over the course of this season, what we've realized is these birds are site faithful and you know we really have a responsibility now.
3: And for those of you who are listening to the podcast, uh, folks can go to Monty and Rose. You spell it out, montyandrose.net, to find out information about Monty and Rose, too. So you're you're in production for that right now, Bob.
2: Yeah, so we're uh, almost done with the actual filming of it, but then things keep on happening. There's new chapters to the story (laughs) that at some point, this is going to need to be cut off we're going to need to wrap it and kind of work on some editing. But, um, but we are kind of, we're waiting for hopefully Monty and Rose to come back and their, their young ones uh, were banded last year. So I think the the big question going into this season to me is where will the young ones turn up? There's a high likelihood that they are going to be uh, seen somewhere here around the great lakes and they already have been seen down on the wintering grounds. So, uh, we'll get to find out where Chicago plovers uh, return in the summer. Chicago hatched plovers, which is going to be a lot mm-hmm. of fun. Uh, yeah, and so we it, do find out, out later this year. Um, and uh, Bob has has
3: uh, I th- I threatened him, and now, <laughs> and he says he's going to oh, take Bob. he's going to take me out to uh, uh, the the next time he grabs his camera and goes out there looking for plovers, especially if they come back soon. Uh, I imagine you want, yeah. you'd want you love to have the return in 2021 to be the tail end of your next film.
2: Right, yeah, it would be an appropriate, I think, closing. Um, we got a lot from last year, which was just such a anomalous year with the uh, pandemic, which was unexpected, and that's going to be an interesting thing to now weave into the story. But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, the sort of coda to me would be having the, Plovers uh, come back and particularly the, the young ones and knowing where this sort of legacy um, extends to. And right now it, it could be anywhere. It could be, maybe they'll come back to Montrose. Maybe they'll turn up somewhere else like Michigan or, or Wisconsin. Right. Illinois Beach. Um, Illinois Beach, uh, Waukegan, uh, which yeah. would be a thrill. Uh, knowing the folks up there and, and the program that's set up to monitor in Waukegan, uh, where they have amazing birds.
3: All right. Um, before we go, Doug, uh, what are you working on uh, right now? Th- you know, I appreciate you uh, coming on the, the show to talk about the 3.1 acres that we've added uh, to Montrose Beach. Uh, but what has been occupying your time?
1: Mostly monarchs. Um, That's not a bird. And, yeah, it's not a bird. The uh, And it is a little disconcerting that I probably spend more time on monarchs than birds these days. But there are a lot of similarities with monarchs, there are migratory species. And so a lot of the issues we think of for migratory birds also apply to the um, monarch. And I think the most important thing from my standpoint is for both of them, that the city, urban areas can really make a significant difference. You know, for monarchs, you know, Isa and Erica were talking about, you know, people's gardens, the the milkweeds that you grow. For birds, we have, you know, the city parks, we have the forest preserves, we have the street trees. All of those contribute for birds that are migrating through this area. And, you know, I often sort of unfairly refer to central Illinois as the great Corn soybean desert, and when they migrate north, Chicago is really the first good rest area for a lot of these migratory birds, and um, and the monarchs are sort of facing the same thing. There's not much habitat till they get here, and then suddenly there's habitat in a lot of places.
3: That's uh, counterintuitive. In it seems in some ways
1: it is counterintuitive but you know that's you know if you look at like maps of where the um, nature preserves are or where endangered species occur in illinois they're concentrated in the chicago area uh-huh. and It's because in much of the rest of the state it got turned into farm fields while in chicago it never really got turned into farm fields and and we've been able to bring it bring it back i mean i i don't think people really appreciate what a spectacular thing we have with the city parks with natural areas not just ball fields but natural areas Mm -hmm. and the forest preserves they're just an incredible resource
3: that's uh that's a great way to end it uh is is a tribute to um our urban areas and suburban and and, And right and uh and the the fourth uh, forethought of, of people a hundred years ago who uh, protected as the, uh, the 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 um, park district or I'm sorry forest preserve district yeah uh so um and then and as you say the park district as well our parks and and our forest preserves so uh bob Dolgan, thank you so much for being here uh doug stotts thank always you. always a pleasure to have you uh appreciate it and let's uh, let's see what happens i can't wait to see if monty and rose come back and bob you're going to take me out there with you
2: yeah yeah, you should do a can we do a live show from out there or is that too much to ask? Is that too much to agree with we're about?
3: We're gonna try. <laughs> Believe
2: me, if I'm going out there okay.
3: we're gonna give it a go. It might be all right. Might be on my All right. Let me know how I can help. Uh, okay. Give a holler. All right. It's the okay. Mike it's the Mike Novak show with Peggy Molecki Meteorologist, Rick DeMaio is next. At this time of year, we spend a lot of time indoors with our plants, so help them thrive. The plants you're viewing were treated with Leafzyme, a foliage spray designed to activate beneficial microbes already present on the leaves. A spritz every few weeks promotes growth-enhancing microorganisms that process dust and other particles into nutrition that indoor plants can absorb through their leaves for beautiful and vigorous growth. Go to blazing-star.com and check out their BioGarden line for home gardeners.
7: At Sitka Salmon Shares, we take pride in being a seafood company that's a little different. In fact, 10 seasons ago, our motto was we do salmon differently. Nowadays, we harvest 15 species of wild-cut Alaskan fish, but still call ourselves Sitka Salmon Shares. Because, well, we're a little different. Our difference starts with our fleet of fishermen, who own a slice of the company Mm. and are paid above industry average. They deliver fish to our docks in about half the time as other fishermen, which means higher quality of fish for you. And we never buy our fish from large processors where we don't know how each fish was caught or handled, like most other companies do. Another difference is our fish plant, which we own too. Our plant freezes fish about twice as cold and twice as fast as the other guys. This produces unparalleled quality at a cellular level. Ooh. Our difference extends to you too. By joining our community, you've been together with thousands of other people who want to make a difference in the way that their food is produced. This allows our fishermen to harvest fish just for you with the respect, thought, and care that the fish, the ocean, and you deserve. So be a little different. Join us at SitkaSalmonShares.com.
4: You can help slow climate change in 2021 by composting Don't even need a backyard. By composting communally in multi-unit buildings across Chicagoland, Collective Resource Compost has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010. CRC brings you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter, they swap it out, and get it to a commercial composting operation. Fight climate change. Go to collectiveresource.us. And welcome back. And
3: there he is uh, in the bottom left corner of your screen. Uh, good morning, Rick DeMaio, and uh, happy Sunday.
6: Yeah. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Peg. Happy. Good morning. Happy rainy soggy sun Sunday. Something. Oh, that I got needed, blue right?
4: sky. I got blue sky right now.
6: Um.
3: <laughs>
4: It's coming your way, Rick. You're
3: you're you're not you're not supposed to it's, contradict the weather guy. No, no. Okay.
4: It started that way, and in the last 15 minutes, it's turned to blue sky.
6: Wow. Yeah, well, there's there's a little bit of blue up there, Mike. I'm not going to argue with that. Um, there's
4: a- <laughs> it's heading your way. <laughs>
6: um, it's probably heading Rockford's way, uh, being that mm-hmm. I'm um south of you. But that's okay. Uh, but yeah, this is what happens when you get underneath these big upper air lows where the uh, surface low is to the west into the occluded part so you just basically have the clouds and rain kind of spitting over you uh, during the overnight period and I'm just going to go through um, some of the rainfall totals even though um, even though I sent you a map these are some of the updated ones uh, 0.26 inches at O'Hare uh, 0.2 at Midway 0.33 um, at Romeoville but you get a little bit further north and west uh, 0.86 at Rockford 0.43 up near peg. Uh, when you get out to the northwestern part of the state, uh, we had totals easily over an inch, inch and wow. a half. Uh, matter of fact, yeah, Joe, uh, Joe Davies County, Stevenson County, anywhere between an inch and a half to two inches and out by the Quad Cities, uh, nearly four in- uh, three inches of rain fell. So they were on the, you know, what's called the back of the upper low or everything just kind of spinning around and you get the end of rain that just kind of sits there. Uh, for a good solid, you know, 12 to 15 hours. But um, as you saw in some of the information that I sent you, uh, we're down about two inches. And even though we're down, it's amazing what happened in the last week with our 12 degrees above normal temperature departure. Uh, four days in the 70s. Two of those we eclipsed the 80 degree mark. Something that we don't normally see around here on average till about the 26th of April. Mm-hmm. And I, I mentioned it so many times in the last two months, uh, the ground pretty much had uh, some decent subsoil moisture. Uh, the temperatures of the subsoil moisture, uh, about four inches down, were probably around 45 to about 50 degrees. So all you needed was you know, two or three nights of temperatures in the 60s, which is what we had. Uh, a couple of days were readings in the 80s, and all of a sudden it looks like... Um, the 26th or 27th of April, not the 6th or 7th of April yeah. from a couple of days yeah. ago. It's like we like we leapfrogged the middle of April and went all the way to the week of the month. And um, I'm happy about it. I think most people are happy about it as well. Well, uh, well uh, as Doug, as Doug Stotts,
3: well, well, I'm getting a feedback here. <laughs> all right. Uh, as Doug Stotts, there we go. It, sometimes it just pops up. And uh,
4: yeah, you were uh, echoing
3: yeah, uh Doug was saying that uh even the birders uh got faked out because they they expect to have all these different uh species come through uh, and he has to remind people that, hey, it's still the beginning of april there's there's a a lot of time you know we get we get a couple of days that touch on eighty, and everybody thinks mm-hmm. summer's here, and now let's wear yeah. shorts and t shirts and uh and that's it we're we're moving on.
6: No, we, we, did, we didn't leapfrog the month of May. We just leapfrog a couple of weeks in April. In April yeah. And as we all know, um, early May around here could be just as drab. But um, uh, as I as I mentioned in a report yesterday uh, to the both of you, um, I don't see 70s or 80s around here. Yeah. Uh, probably until, uh, if not the end of April, you know, maybe early May for another mm-hmm. set of 80-degree days. The pattern becomes much more bogged down, which is typical for, you know, mid April to get these big upper lows, these occluded systems. Um, we just get a lot of clouds and, you know, off and on drizzle, it's basically summer, you know, trying to fight, you know, uh, the winter season. And because the Great Lakes and Hudson's Bay um, locks onto that cool weather longer than anywhere else. Um, we end up with usually very, you know, very cloudy periods. But again, I mentioned this last week, um, lake water temperature of Lake Michigan is running enormous Way even this week. Yeah, since nineteen ninety five. And you can almost tell that when the wind is off the lake, it doesn't have that bite to it that it normally would in early April. It almost feels like, like late April. Um so so this is good. This is this is good news. The grass is green, the trees are budding, um and we got a nice head start. <laughs> No, Just no don't plant to
4: your
6: tomatoes yet. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we know that for sure. But but even but even over the next um, week and a half to two weeks, Peg, um, I don't see anything in a way of like really super cold polar air coming down over us. Uh, whatever no. is over the northern parts, or to say the western areas of Canada and southern sections of the plains of Canada, uh, whatever snow is up there um, is gone. And, and even over areas of like eastern Montana and North Dakota, they're in a serious drought out there, mainly due to the fact that some areas. I was looking at Dickinson, North Dakota, a grand total of six inches of snow for the winter. I, I don't think how, I. Was how, how much you, you cut out? How much, well, Rick? Um, Dickinson, North Dakota, literally six inches of snow for the winter. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's un. That's North driving. Dakota. Wow. And that and that's and normally they're up around forty or fifty inches. Uh, so typically that's where some of our real late cold outbreaks come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know you, you're going to say, don't plant the tomatoes probably in the next two weeks. You might be able to, but yeah, there's, there's really nothing in the way of any super cold weather coming back at us. Not yeah, super- so no ice storms, no snows like last year. No, no, the pattern, the pattern's much different than what it was last year.
3: Ah, so, uh, so we're in that it, we're in spring. It's not going to be eighty degrees, but it's also not going to be freezing and snowstorms.
6: As, as I like to use the analogy, if you're playing the Wheel of Fortune and you're trying to you're trying to spell out "spring has sprung," we're on the "u" of "sprung." He filled in the whole thing. <laughs> okay, uh, I, I got an That's email.
3: You and Alex. Speaking of 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 uh, vegetables and planting them, uh, our friend uh, Dan Costa. Uh, from Vern Goer's Greenhouse in Hinsdale, wrote to me, Hi, Mike. Amazing how many people are buying tomatoes, peppers, and other vegetables. Most don't even have true leaves yet. Uh, No one seems to realize it's April 10th and not May 10th. People also want to plant annuals already. I think... Uh, at least one night next week. Now you can tell us about this, uh, Rick. He says uh, he thought one night next week will be in the thirties. So they will all be back to complain about their dead plants.
6: <laughs> yeah, but it, it won't, it won't be the low thirties. So I, okay. I don't, I, there's, there's, there's really nothing like a polar jet stream coming our way. Um, but, you know, a couple of things, I don't know if you guys mentioned the stuff that I sent you, but I mean, this is great news. Um you know, Joe Biden was vice president under Barack Obama for eight years. And Obama clearly had his you know, legacy built, uh, really tried to put forth, you know, the, the notion of sustainability and climate change. But it's almost like Biden is is trying to build maybe an even bigger legacy, yeah. which I think is really. amazing. But what what has happened this past week is is truly unbelievable. Uh, Biden, um, though I should say the Biden administration proposed a record budget. For NOAA, the budget is $6.9 billion. That's fantastic. It's a $1.4 billion increase um, from what Trump had. Um, Actually, it's a $1.4 billion increase from the previous year and nearly $2.3 billion of what President Trump had. And I was thinking about this a $1.4 billion increase, that's, I think, like five of the top salaries, you know, in Major League Baseball, you know, you got some of these players who are now have $250 million contracts, granted, over the life of, you know, 10 years or something like that. And when you when you hear $1.4 it sounds like a lot, but it really isn't. I mean, look how much money we waste on the Department of Defense. And here we are excited about $1.4. Yeah. We shouldn't have to be excited about this. This is something that should be there all the time, especially when you look back um, at the fact that we had twenty-two natural disasters last year. Each of those were over a billion dollars. Now the, mm-hmm. the 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 number or say the total number of dollar amount from those twenty-two natural disasters was about fifty-five billion. And that's actually a low number. We've had as as high as two hundred to three hundred billion. So the fact that we're only spending one point four billion is like literally still a drop in the bucket, considering yeah. if you look at where that money is going, which I think is really, really fantastic, it's actually using climate-related data to make forecasts for adaptation and mitigation efforts. This is everything that the IPCC wants research to go. They can't make the call. They just make recommendations. This is where the National Climactic Assessment Data Group uh, one that is, you know, championed by uh, Professor Don Wubels down at the U of I. Um, this is something that's been going on for about eight years or so, which is how to get forecast from climate data, as opposed to just, well, we think this is where it should be. So we're using the results of these climate assessments to make adaptation and mitigation forecasts, which is really where we should be going, because clearly, you know, we know that we're not going to, you know, to stop the warming of the planet. We just went over 420 parts per million.
3: Yeah, I uh, saw hydroxide.
6: that. Yeah, and and that was that was after a year of the pandemic. So even with the pandemic bringing down the, the usage of global oil, which is typically about 100 million barrels a day, that's the demand for global oil, 100 million. Uh, during the pandemic, we got it down to 92. Even though we got it down to 92, it literally had no dent, like literally no dent on the long-term trend of CO2. So we clearly have to change our game plan. The pandemic, as bad as it has been, was probably, I hate to say this, a good thing for science because it kind of shook out cages and made us think of what we really have to do over the next 50 years.
3: Yeah, uh, that... Uh... That increase includes $800 million to expand investments in climate research, support regional and local decision making with climate data and tools, and improve community resilience. As you mentioned, uh, which is is great. But you're you're so right in in putting it in perspective. Uh, 1.4 billion increase compared to what the the money we we just throw at the military. Yeah, more bombs, more guns. Yeah, and the world. You know. The, the, Climate change is going to kill us all eventually. You'd think that might be uh, a serious uh, consideration uh, if you're looking at your uh, security, but um, that's that's the best. At, at least we're doing. At least it's going up it's and start. not down. Yeah,
6: it's a start. Yeah, in the right yeah. direction. and you know, um, you know, some of some of the data because usually when you get into about the second or third month of of the of either 1991. 2001, 2011 to 2021, uh, we take the previous 30-year climate record. So in other words, we were using 1980, 1990, and 2000 up to 2010 as our previous 30-year running average. Um, We had now shifted from 81 to 2010 to 91 to 2020. Okay, so we're actually able to to shift that running 30-year average. Um, And part of that average includes what we call average Atlantic hurricane season activity. So typically we get 12 named storms, um, sometimes five, six of those are hurricanes, three are major hurricanes. We've now shifted from 12 to 14. So that's because we had a very, very active period in the 90s and also uh, in the 2004, 2005 season, um, as well as 2020 where we had 30 named hurricanes. So now the average is going to be 14 named storms. Hmm. We went from six to seven hurricanes, still three major hurricanes. But another thing is that they've decided to get rid of the Greek alphabet. So once you go past, I think it's like storm number 21 or 22, instead of using the Greek alphabet, which to me never really made sense because – a, no one knows the Greek alphabet, and B, no one knows what C <laughs> or, or D or F is. They would think it'd be like alpha, beta, caros, delta, epsilon, and theta, whatever. And and it was all over the place. So after exhausting the Greek alphabet in 2005 and last year, they decided once you're once you're past that number 21, you go back to A, B, C, D, E, and F. Mm. Uh, so that's another thing that the National Hurricane Center, NOAA, has agreed on.
3: That's I hadn't heard that. And so that's, that's great. Uh, that's I, I I also wondered about the, the Greek alphabet. It just just didn't seem yeah, to because nobody
4: gets it. But so Rick, you said you had to leave a little early. So Yeah, I, I got another
6: two or three minutes. And the reason why so we need... is I, I just heard. No, that's fine. Because I just heard Rebecca turn the, the hairdryer on. So usually that gives me <laughs> five minutes. Okay, Uh, uh, you know, uh,
3: unless she's uh, you know using it to dry something, a spill or something, or you know, no,
6: no, no. Um, Something else I wanted to talk to you guys about was the uh, the Arctic blast that hit Texas. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. This is this ended up being a really really bad freeze to those areas in the Rio Grande Valley, the worst since 1989. Yeah. Potentially affecting the uh,
4: monarchs too, coming through.
6: Yeah, I I heard something about that. But this has been something that we were worried about. Um, It was late in the season. We've had uh, an overall warming of that part of Texas and right along the Rio Grande for the last 20 or 30 years. So things actually butted out a little bit ahead of schedule. And then we had this freeze. So bottom line, $380 million and counting in agricultural damage, uh, $230 alone to citrus. Um, and at least 50% of the crop had already begun its spring floral blooms that typically arrive um, in about mid-February. This was mm-hmm. kind of right on time from a standpoint of when they normally do. But as we know, this was not one freeze, but it was like two and three, the way it yeah. just kept kind of coming through that particular area. Um, also, three, uh, in, 3.8 in area, million fish killed as well. Yeah, yeah. And and then again, and then we're we're also beginning to realize that um, having fish farms is probably a little bit better, maybe a little bit sustainable, being that we kind of know where the fish are. We kind of know how to keep them, you know, healthy Um, and whether or not people like, you know, salmon caught in the river because that's more sporty or, you know, fish from a fish farm. I don't really know how to go on that. Uh, but from a standpoint of, yeah, from the fish farm killed, uh, Peg, this, this, is, this is not good. So, so as, as much as you see all these people in Texas going to a ball game with no masks on and Governor Abbott continuing to blame everything and everybody else, um, Texas has got some big problems that they have to figure out between how to protect their crop and then how to protect their wind turbines as well.
3: Well, and on the list that you sent us, more than 10,000 rescues of stunned sea turtles, including at least 7,000 along the lower Texas coast. And that's a record since statistics began in 1980. Yeah, I mean, all this collateral damage. We were, obviously, people died during that freeze and people lost Mm -hmm. their water. and, And we look at all the damage done to, to homes and businesses and to the population there. But look at the damage, as you're saying, done to crops and to wildlife as
6: well. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because when I, I just taught uh, Chapter 8 last week and Chapter 9 this week at Loyola, which is Chapter 8 is all about politics and policy and climate change, and I literally had to rewrite the entire chapter based on the fact that we're now back in the Paris Climate Accord uh, Biden administration has put forth all these efforts on how he wants to do things, particularly with infrastructure. And then you hear the Republicans just continually knock down the infrastructure plan because it has all these things that are that are related not to infrastructure, but climate change. But I don't know if they realize, but climate change has a huge impact on infrastructure. And, and the fact that they're using that as something to say well you guys are just putting this in there because you want your your green energy in there no that has nothing to do with it infrastructure has everything to do with levee's giving way on the mississippi river um seawalls needed to be built in areas of southern louisiana to protect those gas and chemical refineries that were hit by not one not two not three but four hurricanes in that area that's one of the reasons why we had a spike uh, and gasoline prices. So when when you want to, I think, from the, from a Democratic standpoint, Democratic Party, um, pre- present this to the overall public, they, they got to really begin to focus on the fact that this is not an infrastructure bill, bill that has climate change policies in it. It's an infrastructure bill that's going to protect us from the costs and ever increasing rebuilding of the risk that we're seeing from a changing and more variable climate. And when you present that to the public and people, and you, you almost have to say, this is how this much costs. This is how this much costs. This is on this much costs. This bill will spend a dollar to save 4 you'll get more public support in that way. And not only public support, but if you get more public support, then hopefully the lawmakers will go, yeah, you know what, maybe this is a good idea. So I, I, I hope that, that is how that comes through. So that was Chapter 8, and now Chapter 9 <laughs> is basically all about energy. And, oh, my God, I mean, when you look at the the changes just alone from wind energy and solar energy, particularly in China over the last two or three years, um, it, it really is quite amazing where we went from the pandemic and then where we're expecting to be. So anybody who's teaching a sustainability class or a climate change class Um, If you're not up on cuts, like literally weekly and monthly, then you're back in the 1990s and you're you're not doing your students' justice. That's not saying that what I'm doing is right. I'm just saying is it's one of those things where it's not all about recycling or composting. It's all about the policies involved because everything Mm now um, is based on whether or not it fits into the economy and being American and being America first. So um, I'm, it's, I'm, it's a tough road, tough road to climb.
3: Right, right after the show, I'm giving Biden a call and tell him he needs to chat with you. And uh, <laughs> we, we've got to get you in doing their messaging in in this uh, infrastructure bill. All right, we we need a forecast uh, for uh, for what yeah. is now realistic spring.
6: <laughs> We're still in the U. Take, take That's the still the fortune. Spring has sprung. And next week, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Next week we'll see the end pop up. And I'll have Vanna White trying to pull it, but the wind off the lake is keeping it caught, right? Um, yeah, there you go. There you go, Craig. Uh, All right, so um, upper 40s, lower 50s now from the north and west. A uh, little bit of sprinkle activity, a little bit of drizzle, not a big deal. Uh, looks like dry weather Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. So the next six days things dry out. But the wind slowly moves in off the lake Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So it'll be... Basically every day a bit of a wind off the lake, keeping us somewhat cool. Uh, and with that, just a lot of off and on clouds. Nothing real sunny. Definitely nothing real warm. Normal high is now up to close to 60. I don't think we'll anything. I don't think we're going to see anything near that term perspective anytime soon. So you get this every once in a while. So um, it's nice that we had the 70s and 80s last week. We're running 12, 12 degrees above normal. This is the warmest first 10 degrees of April. In the history of Chicago, which is pretty amazing.
3: Yeah, but uh, it sort of did in my daffodils. It got too warm too fast, and then they sort of petered out. uh, But there's other stuff uh, coming up. So you're saying, will we get to 60s uh, during the week? No 60s, no 70s, and no 80s. Basically 50s. Really? Okay. Because I saw one some forecast somewhere said we might hit 60 if we get like like tomorrow. yeah. Maybe. Yeah, we might get
6: 61 or 62, but um, or midway, most of the will be at one or two hours of 60 degrees. That's it. Okay. Cool. All right. Have a great Sunday. Talk to you next week. Sounds good. Bye, guys.
3: Bye, bye. Uh, and uh, there we go. That, that's that's a wrap. <laughs> that's that's a wrap, folks. So let's see if we can do this. Uh, see, it's even at the lower level. Kathleen said last week was very funny because we were doing ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, but the mics the, the mics, I, the I, mics I, were not on. What, because they automatically cut off when it reaches. Anyway, you don't need to know that. <laughs> uh, I want to thank uh, everybody who was uh, on the, the show today. Erica Hassel and um, uh, uh,
4: Isa
3: Radlinski. Thank you. Isa Radlinski and Doug Stotts and Bob Dolgan and Rick DeMaio. Want to thank uh, Kathleen as always, uh, Legata, and Basil the dog, and until next time, go green or go home.
4: Uh,
7: Stadler? Yeah, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much.